Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by... David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, write me a few of your lines. And we're back on air. This is Published or Not 3CR. David McLean here, joined by... Ewan Mitchell. Good morning, David. Good morning, Ewan. A full-packed studio today. We do indeed. So I think we better get started. Okay. My book today touches on one of the great literary controversies of the modern era, one which I wasn't that familiar with. The book is The Lost Pages, and the author, and I've, you're going to have to correct my pronunciation, is Maria Perichich. Did I get that right? Fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you very much. So, Maria, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. First and foremost, congratulations. Your book won the Vogel Award, which is given to an unpublished manuscript for a writer under 35 years of age. Thank you. Now, given what your book touches on in terms of existential issues and experience, what's this experience going to do for your writing career of winning the Vogel? Well, it's just totally changed my life it's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me and i thought 3cr coming oh. on to 3cr would have been that. <laughs> it was up there it's up okay there. right okay um, so yeah after winning this award it's such a fantastic and generous award um obviously you win prize money and that's going to let me buy some time off work to do some more writing but there's a number of well-known australian authors who began by winning the Vogel. It sort of puts a bit of pressure on you as well. It is. It does a little bit. I try, I'm trying not to think about that too much. <laughs> well, let's get on to the novel. Now, we need some sort of context here. Uh, this literary controversy is actually between Franz Kafka and Max Brod. Can you fill us in a bit about... Yeah. So I first became interested in this topic when I read an article um, in New York Times magazine, which told about this court case. And the court case was so absurd and crazy. It just seemed like something out of one of Kafka's novels. Uh, And it was, it centered around these Kafka manuscripts. And um, it's well known that Um, Kafka actually didn't publish all that much during his own lifetime and it was actually Max Broad who published most of what we know of of Kafka's work and Kafka had actually asked him to destroy all of his papers and which Max ignored and then he published pretty much everything we know of of Kafka's work from these manuscripts. Which speaks to the volume of what um, Kafka was producing Mm. at at the time if he did produce it, this sort of question um, has has arisen and, and academics are debating um, sort of uh, whether Broad had the right to do that, mm. uh, Kafka wanted them destroyed, all of these sorts of questions. And the absurdest element, who owns the manuscript? Are they part of um, a country's literary heritage, uh, Israel? Uh, do they belong to individual people who were inherited? So there's there's all of that in the background, which is, is quite crazy. Now, the book is the imagined memoir 
of Max. Uh, as, as we've said, who became the self-appointed executor of Kafka's manuscripts. But I was feeling slightly sorry for Max here. <laughs> um, he hasn't got the right of reply. Did you have any qualms as an author imagining or constructing Max's emotional and psychological profile here? Well, you know, when I think about that now, it does make me feel quite terrible and like a terrible person. Um, But at the time, I really did approach it as a a fictional exercise and I deliberately um, decided in the end not to research too much into the the real Max's life. Obviously, parts of the book are true and there are some things in there that are true, but in terms of the psychological imaginings, it's all just my imagination. Yeah, so, I mean, it's quite legitimate for an author to imagine, but we're talking about... Uh, someone who did actually exist in real life, who had a reputation for, uh, well, he had his own literary career Mm -hmm. and um, promoted uh, authors in his day, uh, including Kafka. Including Kafka, and he was very generous. And not only, he did not only promote authors, but musicians. Um, He was hugely prolific, actually. Broad um, was even a filmmaker. He wrote music. And he supported all these different artists in Prague and in Israel where he later lived as well. Um, And another thing we sort of need to fill in in the background, Kafka, the significance of Kafka in modern letters? Well, he's a huge figure and, I mean, he, he was so much before his time. The way he describes the human condition, it just seems like it would be at home now in, in, in the contemporary world. Um, and a lot of his early, well, before he died, his reputation was based on Die Verwandlung or Metamorphosis, yeah. which is about a character turning into uh, an insect, a hideous insect. Yes. So it raises questions of uh, identity, uh, there's existentialism, absurdism, which then became part of the sort of contemporary modern literary scene. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and the, the, the psychology of the modern human as well, perhaps. Yes. Mm. Um, so we have, and this happened in real life, and the, this is where the novel begins, Broad and Kafka meeting at a, a lecture on Schopenhauer. Mm. And this adds then another dimension. Uh, Schopenhauer? Yes. So, um, well, one could say, I mean, Schopenhauer's philosophy is you know, obviously hugely influential. And you could say it's partly about self-motivation and self-interest. And so that is possibly a theme that comes up in the book as well. Yes, so that meeting, in in fact, and that that topic of Schopenhauer is quite significant. And to be completely reductive of uh, Schopenhauer's philosophy, there was a a sort of malicious self-interest as well behind it in some ways, um, if I understand it correctly. I I believe so, which is interesting also if you consider Schopenhauer the man as well, but that's, I suppose, that's a whole other other story. So... With this background, we then have Max struggling with his own identity as a writer. Mm. And I dare say uh, every author out there can identify with this. Looking at the book now was like looking at some complicated mechanical object and being told that I had built it when I understood not the first thing about its inner workings or how it was put together. Mm. So Max is looking at his own writing Um, 
something you've experienced with your writing, perhaps? Well, I hadn't actually really had anything published up until this book. So um, I, I think I was foreseeing my own future with that with that little sequence. But I, I think that is a feeling that, that people often have with writing, is looking back and just feeling quite disconnected and either sort of dismayed or perhaps excited about something that one's produced, but maybe not quite understanding how one was able to do that. I sat down and took out my notes, hopeful and ready to begin, but when I looked at them, I found that what had seemed a few weeks ago to be coherent and promising plans were now nothing but pages of vague scribblings of unconnected ideas. (laughs) So, a very frustrated writer. This frustration, then, um, with his writing, soon morphs into a more existential crisis, Mm -hmm. uh, especially when Max starts to compare himself to and compete with this new force in the writing firmament, Franz Kafka. Right. And this is what interested me in this story in the first place, because um, Max was really acting as um, Kafka's patron, as he had with so many other young writers. And I, I wondered how he would have felt at being presented with this young writer who's, who's clearly a literary genius. How, how would he feel? Like, surely... Is, would he be all generosity? Is he so saintly that could anybody be like that? It interested me. Well, it touches on basic human emotion of, of envy and yeah. comparison and, and all of these sorts of things. Yeah. Or, you know, there's competition. How will I fare? And then feeling inadequate within your own self. Because Max, in some ways, has a reason for feeling slightly inadequate physically. What's going on there? Yeah, so physically, um, Max, although I didn't know very much about him when I started writing this book, and I had, I'd known about him as Kafka's sort of agent and patron, and he seemed like this really successful and, and charming kind of man about town. Um, but then I found, actually, he had suffered from this severe spinal deformity his whole life, and he'd had to wear this quite awful full-body harness as a child, um, and for years at a time, but even that didn't stop him from growing up to develop a hunchback, which plagued him, I imagine, his whole life. But the significance of this ties in then with metamorphosis. Yes. And so a lot of the novel is is about Max's feelings of his own insecurity and sense of defectiveness. And I think that this might be something that everybody can relate to. I think everybody at some time feels insecure or that there is just something fundamentally wrong with them. And it's this feeling um, that I wanted to work with in Max. And I, I feel so sympathetic towards him struggling with those feelings that are quite extreme in his case. But it goes even further because in many ways Max is creating his own psychosis, if we can put it that way, um, the the insecurity overwhelms him. It does. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a sensitive fellow and it's true and he, he does, it, it just does all become too much for him. Um, he has a plan. Uh, we can't seem to find Caffrey's not turning up uh, to um, events, the launches and things like that. Mm. Uh, and uh, Broad is made responsible for getting... Kafka there. So in so doing, um, he creates a whole other world in many ways mm. because he sort of starts paying people to impersonate Kafka. He does. To, 
But he is a creator of worlds already in his artistic self. So I suppose it's sort of an example of that art bleeding over into real life. So now we get these existential questions of what is reality, what is fabrication, uh, where we cross that line. Exactly. So you've got... Somewhere along the line, I had begun thinking of the whole enterprise as a fixed plan rather than a mere hypothetical possibility. The only question was, who could I use to play friends? Obviously, it would have to be someone unconnected with literary circles, preferably someone from outside Prague. So the fantasy becomes the reality. Am I being a bit glib there with that comment? or No, but I mean, that happens all the time. Just think about the world now and, and people interacting on social media and how everything there are so many different versions of reality and it's a sort of a question of choosing one and the human mind uh and we can do this socially culturally where something sort of becomes a norm mm. in society and yet it's a fabrication uh in in many ways or a construct well everything is like that i mean religions money social roles, it's all just, we just made it up and we made it true by believing in it. So we really then are moving or, or exploring uh, through Max's life that personal transition and insecurity, which mm. then goes into a fabrication of a whole other world that he then uh, has, has to spend all his energy trying to maintain. That artificial, mm. that artificial realm. Um, ultimately, Broad becomes paranoid and virtually loses touch with uh, his reality. And if I've got another little quote here, if I can find it on page 231, um, words lost their definition and drifted away from the objects to which they were usually attached. Language became a kind of alchemy, an impossible marvel, to make a sound an arrangement with one's lips and tongue and breath, which would conjure up the image of a thing, a hard object, in the mind of another. It was like a magician's trick. I would hear the words of others coming at me through the air, and perhaps I sometimes sent out words of my own, sounds also. Words became meaningless. I lived in the surer world, to me it seemed surer, of the senses of hot and cold, of colours and feelings, pleasant or not. Mm. Language is a slippery thing. Well, what do words actually mean? How, do they, how did they acquire that meaning? They slide across um, definitions or change mm. over time. But you've got... Max then, the creature, virtually, losing touch, and the insect, that mm. hideous insect, losing yeah. touch with physical, emotional, uh, psychological reality. Yeah. So that, that transition is there, uh, which is extraordinary. Um, so we can't give away the ending of the book because you add your own little touch to that controversy. Yes. Um, which... I think um, will come as a, well, um, a surprise to the reader. And I hope people and the listeners go out and get a copy of The Lost Pages to see what Maria has done with that literary controversy. So, Maria, uh, an all too short an interview, uh, but we've got to uh, bring in Ewan's guest now. But thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. 
you went over to you, oh, sir. That, that was great. Uh, I was really interested to hear that, Marie. Can I just ask you, were you influenced, influenced in any way by uh, Amadeus and Mozart's relationship with Salieri, looking at two great artistic figures in history? I actually avoided looking at kind oh, okay. of similar things because yeah. I just really wanted to forge my own. I kind of went yeah. into lockdown and just wanted to just yeah. really forge sure. my own way. Oh, you've got an amazing but, empathy that uh, reading out that passage there that uh, David just quoted, getting inside Max Broad's head, it was terrific. Great. Now, I'm not sure whether you know Marie, but Kate Larson is the Director of Writers Victoria, and she's joining us this morning. Thank you for coming in to 3CR's Published or Not this morning, Kate. Thanks for having me. Well, look, there's a lot that I'd like to ask you about uh, Writers Victoria, but uh, I guess the first thing is to dis- if I could ask you to describe in general terms what Writers Victoria is and what it does for the writing community in Victoria. So Writers Victoria is the state peak body for writers and writing. We like to say wherever writing happens, we are there. So we're a membership organisation. We represent about 3,500 members across the state. Uh, But we also, um, in in addition to providing professional development and community for those writers, we also advocate on their behalf Okay. Some of the issues that you're advocating at the moment, for example, are? So the entire literary sector in Australia is a bit on edge at the moment as we wait for the government's response to last year's Productivity Commission recommendations into the uh, potential changes to copyright and parallel import restrictions, uh, which could, if introduced, both have significant impact on Australia's writers and publishers. Yeah. Now, they're complex bits of legislation. Mm. Can you summarise, though, first of all, the changes to copyright and then parallel importation and and briefly summarise who are the winners and losers in the proposed changes? Uh, Well, to answer the second half of your question, the the losers are definitely going to be the the writers uh, in the equation uh, and the publishers as well. the changes to copyright uh, that have been proposed, it would move us from our current uh, situation to, um, which is called fair dealing, to a more American model, which is called fair use. Uh, but actually, the use of fair in that um, description uh, is highly contentious uh, because it gives writers much less control over who can use their work in what context and with, uh, whether or not they get paid if they do so. Um, The parallel import restrictions basically means that overseas copies of um, Australian books can be sold here at a lower cost than Australian publishers. Uh, Undercutting the local publishers. Undercutting the local publishers, which means that publishers who already work on an incredibly precarious business model are going to publish fewer and less risky work, which then disadvantages the writers again because they have less opportunity to get their work out there. Okay. Now, if someone were advocating on behalf of the free market, they say, might say, well, let free market rule. But uh, writing is in uh, quite a unique position in that I believe it's something like 50% of books that are read in Australia are by Australian authors. Is that your understanding? Absolutely. We, in spite of... As I said before, you know the difficulties in and the costs of, of publishing work uh, and the competitiveness uh, of getting work out there. Australia has an amazing, thriving publishing scene and thousands of amazing writers, and our work is internationally renowned. Um, so there's a real fear, not only for the impact on writers' livelihoods if these changes come in and the impact on publishers, but also on the impact of uh, Australian stories getting told in Australia. Mm. So currently they're they're getting told prolifically, but if uh, due to the economy of scales, 
uh, it would be cheaper for a publisher just to, well, I'm going to use the word dump, uh, dump a lot of uh, excess uh, titles that have already been paid for in a massive uh, market in the Northern Hemisphere, just dump them on Australia. Well, I can understand that's not going to be uh, too much in the interest of Australian authors or publishers. Yeah, uh, and, and in Australian readers as well. So, yeah. And that's really where the yeah. arguments for these changes have come in, that there might be a slight yeah. drop in price point at the bookstore. Yeah. Um, but similar changes when they were introduced in New Zealand have really decimated the industry. Yeah. So um, we're all nervously awaiting and hoping that those changes aren't adopted. Well, let's hope they're not. Yeah, just moving on, though, the um, one of the uh, things that Writers Victoria does some great publicity on is its annual program, teaching program, for uh, people who are interested in expanding their skills. You mentioned before professional development. Could you give us a bit of an overview and perhaps some specific examples of workshops that Writers Victoria host? Yeah, so we run about 250 professional development opportunities every year and all over the state. Uh, This year our theme is Words in the World, which is about celebrating um, the value that writing can have. So, uh, and that in two different ways. So one, the value that writing can have in the world, so how we can change minds, how we can have a social impact, um, how we can have an environmental impact, Um, and then also how writing can have value for the individual writer. So in a difficult economy, how writers can make a living from their work. So because of that, we teach uh, an incredibly diverse uh, array of subjects uh, which are all delivered by mostly Victorian uh, authors uh, so from copywriting to social media to marketing your work to performance poetry uh, playwriting uh, and everything in between and there are really multiple workshops every week aren't there there are yeah. every week both in uh, in Melbourne online and all around the state the state. Uh, and is it open only to members? No, absolutely not. So we work with thousands of writers every year. Obviously, members uh, get added benefits, so they get discounts on all of our courses and services, uh, and they get special members-only um, events and activities. But all of our uh, all of our workshop program are open for people who are. Uh, just starting to think about writing down that story that we all have inside us somewhere. Yeah. Now, workshopping. Uh, I want to ask you, if someone's listening and thinking, you know, I'd like to workshop my writing and uh, see how it stacks up with some criticism. Uh, what would you recommend in terms, I know there are a lot of community writing groups out there, but there are also a number under the umbrella of Writers Victoria. What should someone listening who wants to you know, test the water with their writing, what should they do? Yeah, well, ab- absolutely we recommend workshopping as a great first step for developing writer's work. Um, It's almost impossible to write peerless prose when sitting in a garret or a garage or a spare room on your own and only giving it to your mum to read over. Your mum's going to love it. Uh, Try to give it to somebody not related to you. So one of the great ways to do that uh, and one of the free ways to do that is to join a writer's group. So to swap your work with other peers, reading other people's work is just as important as writing your own. You learn a lot through the process of critiquing others as much, I think, sure. as receiving critique yourself. So on the Writers Victoria website, uh, we have a list of writers groups that mostly meet in the Wheeler Centre where we're based in Melbourne, um, but also other areas of the state. And the groups that advertise are open to new members. So you could look for a group uh, that's interested in speculative fiction or a group that's uh, interested in haiku uh, and there might be one available in your area. 
We touched on a couple of points I'd like to ask you more about there. The first one is, who are the other organisations in this amazing Wheeler Centre in Little Lonsdale Street? Yes, well, the Wheeler Centre was the gift that Melbourne gave itself when we received um, the status of being a UNESCO city of literature uh, several years ago. We were the second in the world. Um, and uh, thanks to an endowment from uh, the Wheelers, we the Wheeler Centre was created as the Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas. And uh, by the Wheelers, you mean Tony and Maureen Tony Wheelers, Mono the Wheeler. founders of Lonely Planet Publishing? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks to them, we have this amazing building that in once, what once was the south wing of the State Library under the Lonsdale Street that houses this incredible literary hub. So the Wheeler Centre itself, which is also a programming organisation as well as the physical building, but we also have the Melbourne Writers' Festival, the Emerging Writers' Festival, uh, of Writers' Victoria, of course, the Small Press Network, uh, Express Media, which is the organisation for uh, writers under 25 years old, uh, Australian Poetry, the Melbourne City of Literature office itself, uh, and then uh, a lot of small organisations including uh, Penn uh, Melbourne, uh, the Free Play Festival, and um, uh, there's a revolving program of writers who work out of the building. Well, so you've got this hot point of collaboration and collegial networking in Melbourne. Uh, is Victoria unique? I mean, is that level of uh, cooperation uh, also available in other states? Uh, The other states, of course, have their own infrastructure, but it's um, impossible not to speak up on behalf of Victoria. Uh, The literary (laughs) scene here is extraordinary, and that's the reason why we received the UNESCO ratification as an international city of literature. Not only do we have that status but um, as and as the only uh, city of literature in Australia, and until recently we were the only one in the Southern Hemisphere, but uh, just down the road we have Clunes, which is uh, the only book town, which again is an international ratification. Yeah. Um, well, I think there was something like 18,000 people there just, uh, just a, a few, few weeks ago. ago. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the strength of our literary sector in Melbourne and across the state really is unparalleled. So for people looking to become involved, it's a a great resource for the state of Victoria. Now, can I play devil's advocate for a moment? Occasionally an author pops up and tries to make a headline for him or herself by saying, oh, uh, uh, talent as a writer can't be taught, despite a lot of evidence to the contrary. What would you say to a sceptic like that? Uh, I think it's an argument that gets trotted out every few years. Um, Uh, And I'm not really sure of the motivation that brings it to the fore again and again, because clearly writing can be taught. Um, No one comes out of the womb a fully uh, functioning uh, Nobel Prize winner. Um, We learn language uh, and we learn how to wield it. So, um, yes, some people may have more natural uh, talent or skill than others, but, and that may give them some kind of um, head start. But if that craft isn't nurtured, isn't developed, uh, and somebody else who has less uh, innate literary uh, skill works and works and works for years, um, there's no telling which of those may actually be able to make a career out of their writing. There are so many, um, like learning any language, like learning any skill, any art form, um, learning about other influences, about who's come before, about skills, techniques, 
and rules, if only to learn when the rules can be broken. Mm. So um, we, we could open up this interview now for Maria to put her input there and mm. her learning her craft. But someone who I believe is, according to the program, uh, teaching at Writers Victoria at the moment is John Marsden, an acclaimed author who is also not only a teacher, he owns his own school. Yes, and has introduced um, revolutionary teaching methods within that school. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Victorian literary superstar. Can I just quickly throw, because we're running out of time, but just quickly th- throw to Maria, what are your thoughts on learning about learning to write? Well, I never formally studied um, creative writing, but I did... I, I'm a write, member of Writers Victoria too, and I have attended courses with you, which are fantastic. Mm. Um, and I I absolutely think, of course, writing can be taught. And as you say, reading reading the work of others is the, such an important way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, reading like a writer. But, uh, yeah. There's a different way, isn't there? Exactly. You know, you're picking up who the point of view is and the, the tense and all that thing. A lot of things that uh, perhaps a casual reader might not notice. But thank you very much, Kate, for coming in this morning and sharing all that about Writers Victoria. Now, next week, I'm going to say we're going to have on Nicholas Brash David. He's going to be talking about The Garrett, which is an, which is an exciting new podcast program. Writers Victoria are backing that. So thank you for coming in today, uh, Kate and Maria. And I'll throw it back to David. And yes, Maria's book was The Lost pages which is an Alan and Unwin publication and I should say those who want to find out more about Writers Victoria like so many things just put those two words in Google and go to their website (laughs) indeed so that takes us out for this week we'll see you all or hear you all or listen to us all next week thank you very much you've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne Australia for more information go to allthews.3cr.org.au